when I got sentenced, I remember going back to the cell and it was me, my co-defendant, and there was another guy in there. He had just got sentenced too. I remember this overwhelming emotion, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. I felt very disconnected from, really from the world. The tears were coming down my cheek. But the other guy was like trying to comfort me. Like, hey bro, it'll be all right, man. Just hang in there. At the same time, while I'm feeling all of these things, I also felt this clarity, this certain clarity that's like a truth for me. My existence, my, my life is in my hands. Although I'm locked up, I may not ever get out. I still have the power of my life. I could end my life if I choose to, or I can continue to move forward. And nothing else was more real than that moment right there. Welcome to Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is the final episode of season two, Afterlife. If you haven't already, be sure to go back and listen to the previous episodes. That little clarity, it did something to me. We fear death, we fear the unknown. And um, I'm not gonna say I don't fear death, but I, I feel like I faced it. Like I felt like I died that day. You know, I felt like I was told you're gonna die. And when you get told that, it's like something something changes in your thinking. There's There's something else and I need to find what else that is, you know, like, Today, I would consider my life success. So we're in Rancho Cucamonga. <laughs> my new home. <laughs> I just got married a couple months ago in the backyard of my first house I ever bought. Me and my wife, and we live in a in a really nice area. I have my own home, my own car. I pay my bills. I'm not committing no crime. I have a wife that loves me. I love my wife. I'm, there's no drama going on in my life. I can pick up my phone, call my mom whenever I want, put her on video. I have a pretty promising, you know, rewarding career. I go out and volunteer in my community. I go pass out food, I go organize, you know, for families that lose loved ones to police violence. It's not exactly how I thought it was going to be. Like, I'm missing my daughter, but she's 26. She has her own life. Like, I have to keep telling myself that. But I wish I had more of her in my life. That I didn't get. I live in a very nice place. Nobody messes with me. I don't have to look over my shoulder. The police wave at me. I come into contact with police at my job for a good reason. They bring people that need help and I help them. Overall, his life after more than two decades in prison is going great. 
He goes camping on weekends with his wife Rebecca in the nearby mountains and desert. He stays in close touch with his daughter Marlena by phone and FaceTime. But he's still grappling with the loss of his brother Manny, who was killed by L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy Bradley Dietz while Gilbert was still locked up. I looked up the police officer that did it. The moment a police officer says he believes he was in danger, the firing a weapon becomes justified and it will not make it to court. That's because police receive what's called qualified immunity. It protects government officials, including law enforcement officers, from personal liability, except in rare cases. Dietz successfully argued that he acted in self-defense when he shot Manny three times because, he said, Manny moved toward him with a knife. When I go in there and start doing the research and looking all that stuff about my brother, it draws that out of me. It's not a good place for me to be. Gilbert is now a counselor at a crisis center in what he describes as a rough section of San Bernardino. The people brought in by police and social workers include addicts, patients having a mental health crisis, even children who act out in school. This kind of work can be emotionally draining, but as a former child welfare case himself, Gilbert knows how important it is. I work with kids that are like six years old, seven years old. I come into the program because they're hitting kids at school. You know, they're just having these behaviors that are outside of the norm of their age group. And the schools, they do the referral and they bring them to us. So when the psychiatrists go out there and the therapist goes out there and the social worker goes out there and the nurses go out there and they come back and they're like, that kid's terrible. You should hear the shit he was saying or he was doing. And I go out there and I sit out there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes with them, and I find out all this stuff that's going on. And I tell them, bring them in, we, we got them. I go tell them, you guys know that he was being abused, right? They're like, no, we didn't know. I'm like, well, he is. And he's in a foster home and he's been in he's been in like 20 foster homes in one year and they're like what i'm like yeah now, how did you find out well, you gotta go sit down and talk to him i sit down and i'm like what's up man what's going on what's your favorite football team oh you like hockey we're like oh this guy's cool you want something to eat go get him something did you sleep last night or did you sleep last night and I go back and I'm like, that, the reason he's acting up, or she, or a lot of girls too. This is what they're going through. Their mom and dad's gone, or they're abusive to them, or whatever it is. It's powerful. It's sad. You, you're basically working with a broken heart all day. Gilbert has been thinking a lot about how we respond to kids in crisis how we deal with families that struggle with violence, substance abuse, trauma, and above all, poverty. Out of all the think tanks that got us to the moon, you know, they build houses on, on, on the edge of a cliff. 
pay millions of dollars to get these architects to figure out a way so it doesn't fall down. But the best solution is to put this 13-year-old kid in the cell. Is that the best solution we have? <laughs> or when his families, there's domestic violence in their home and they call the police, they come with a social worker, put you in the back of a cop car. That's the best you got. So if that's their solution, then people like us, they grew up that way. We have to do it for ourselves. And um, we're fortunate enough now that there's enough of us working within the system to change it. I might not never see it in my lifetime, what I want to see or what people out there on the ground doing it every day want to see. But we didn't sit back and just let them do it. It's powerful, man. Just keep giving us a chance and we're going to succeed. I've come to the conclusion, I'm like, you know, uh, me working in the field, helping people, going to the marches, speaking up, that is me doing something about it. That's me doing something about it for my brother, for other people, families, even for police officers' families, because I know not all of them are like that. I've had a police officer come here and hang out with me. That's a husband to a co-worker. Uh. Gilbert has been setting up an office in his new home. On one wall, he started a mural that depicts his brother Manny. It's unfinished, and Manny's face seems to stare into the void as you enter the room. The conversations in the community about reimagining public safety or defunding cops are personal for Gilbert. The deputy who killed Manny was later convicted for his role in enabling a major federal crime, yet he still has his job with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. The Sheriff's Department, if you're indicted or warned for your arrest on a felony charge, we'll assume you're already relieved of duty, but you also get your pay suspended. That's Alex Villanueva, L.A. County Sheriff. Your pay is suspended until you go to trial as resolved, guilty or innocent. Except, as we heard in our last episode, that often is not the case. It wasn't charged as a felony, but the deputy who killed Manny committed a crime while on duty. He used his position to assist another deputy's felonies, armed robbery, forgery, and false arrest. Yet according to county records, he never lost a day of pay. When they say abolish, abolish the prison, abolish the police, they're talking about the corruption. I believe they are. You know, we need to abolish these people that have been in power for a long time. These people that have been uh, putting these positions where they're covering up crime, where they are out going and intentionally committing crime under the, under you know, wearing a badge. I'm going to bring my signs, and I'm going to speak up. And that officer, if he did something wrong, he needs to be held accountable just like anybody else. So when we go and protest or when we go bring up these kind of issues, like with my brother, it's because we want justice. 
they're not going to get rid of the police our community and when they steal my car i'm going to call the police here's alex villanueva again responding to calls for police reform they're selling they're reimagining public safety because they, they found defunding with really ugly words so they just call it reimagining yes it would be awesome if we can get to that point where we don't need to get on the phone and call the police because I walked out to work this morning and my car was stolen. But Gilbert isn't just interested in reform and rehabilitation. He's learned over his 16 years of working with youth how to get to the root of violence and causing harm. What do you tell a young, young person you know, what's the magic phrase? What's that magic sentence? Or what's that magic word so that they don't end up like us? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. We have to find out what's going on in that young person's life. What's going on in that young person's life that's gravitating them towards gangs, that gravitates somebody towards drugs, that gravitates somebody to put on their badge that day, you know, put their gun in their holster and drive around and look for somebody to murder. We're also talking about addressing a culture. You know, there's a culture. There's a culture that lives there. There's a code of silence. There's a code of silence in gangs. There's a code of silence in the police department. Even when you work for a company, don't, you know, don't, don't be the whistleblower. Don't, don't mess this up for everybody. When you're in those secret conversations, you're, you're in that circle. You could best believe that those conversations, they're, they're pumped up saying, I wish somebody would today. Hopefully one day you get mature enough where you can do the work on yourself and then look back and say, hey, you know, something happened that moved me towards that direction. And I choose not to live that way no more. While Gilbert knows his work responding to trauma is urgently needed, he also struggles with the fact that society doesn't seem to want to address the root causes of that trauma. Let's start talking about how can we prevent a person from getting to that point? Like what led up to them doing something wrong? Whether it's a police officer, a gang member, somebody that's neither one of them that goes and steals from a company they work at you know that those those crimes are committed for a reason what are those reasons what leads a person to wake up that day and say i'm gonna go do you know this crime there's something in the brain that gets triggered and um, what is it and whenever that subject comes up and at the table of discussion it's always You know, it's always numbers. How do we measure that in numbers? We can't say this violent act didn't happen because this counseling took place or because these preventive matters took place. They're not gonna put money behind something that you can't prove numbers. Those numbers may come eventually, you know, years down the line, when we start saying the crime rate has dropped, the murder rate of law enforcement killing people with mental illness. Gilbert and his siblings were taken away in a sheriff's patrol car when he was eight years old, following domestic violence in their home. I asked him what kind of response he wishes his family could have received in that moment. The police do 
what the police do, they respond as a police officer. So as far as responding to the trauma that's taking place at the time, you know, there's already some bad decisions that have already been made that that would, you know, warrant anybody to come out to a home, you know, where there's children involved in a home, there's drugs involved in a home. It's a very difficult situation to to approach or to to assist in. They would have definitely needed to be some kind of trauma counselor there that understands the importance of minimizing the problem from getting bigger. Yes, there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, but compiling on the problem and making it worse, maybe a trauma-informed counselor can, you know, come in and, and do things with the least amount of damage that can possibly be done. We put more resources into punishment. Now we're starting to see a little, lot more resources into rehabilitation. We do definitely need more, so we're not there yet. But we put very, very little into preventing. Here's author and activist Maryam Kaba. She contrasts the hundreds of billions we put into police, prisons, the military, what she calls death-making institutions to the paltry amounts we spend on the many community-led programs that often actually make us safer. Let's be real about the, the complete lack of resources on the side of the thing that is actually keeping everybody alive. And all the resources going into the death-making institution. If you leave with one thing in this conversation, please ask yourself why that is. It is under-resourced. No, no, not under-resourced. Unresourced. What on our side of what we're talking about today? Who's getting $100,000 for their experiment? For example, look at the programs Gilbert and his colleagues created in prison. Programs that arguably make communities safer when these men come home. Yet we invest almost nothing in them. Kaba is promoting an idea she calls One Million Experiments. They're, quote, community-based projects that expand our ideas about what keeps us safe. There are dozens of them listed on our website, millionexperiments.com. They range from projects about food, environmental justice, to groups that address education, recreation, or physical safety. The premise of this is, what is safety for our communities? And these experiments are trying to answer those questions. What are the conditions that will increase safety for everyone? It's not actually a blueprint, but it's another world in the making. The idea that someone in crisis could come to count on a very different kind of response is not new. Though you might be surprised to know this response is not much older than Gilbert. It's stunning to realize that emergency medical services did not exist until the late 1960s. This amazing story is told by author and paramedic Kevin Hazard, in his new book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Here, ABC News correspondent Lindsay Davis talks to Hazard. Cops didn't stabilize or even treat patients, just rushed them to the nearest hospital. If you worked in the out or lived in the outskirts of town, who would show up would be two undertakers in a hearse. And in 1967, 24 young men from the Hill District in the city of Pittsburgh 
went through an incredibly arduous training program that would stand up next to anything that's done today and quite literally invented paramedics. EMS was something that had a profound effect on my life. It has a profound effect on millions of lives all over the world every day. And yet nobody knows that it started with these guys right here. On the podcast 99% Invisible, Hazard explains why police should not be the first responders to most emergencies. If you can sit down and realize how often the police are called out because there's a psych patient who hasn't taken his medicine and his 76-year-old parents aren't certain what to do with him. Well, you know, unfortunately, the police really kind of, they're limited in terms of what they can do. One of the things I learned very quickly in doing that job was that the police can't lose a fight. And once they arrive, they have to keep pushing forward. And oftentimes, that led to a situation that didn't need to happen. So the idea that other people besides police can better respond to many emergencies is something we've already experimented with. So is it that far-fetched to continue to reimagine the ways we can respond to crisis? And there's probably a new job title, a new role, a whole new group of people that are sitting out there that not too long from now, we're all gonna look back and say, well, of course, it's so obvious. This argument is at the heart of calls to defund police and incarceration. But after the 2020 uprisings, police in the U.S. have not been defunded. As ABC News and The Washington Post have reported, overall police department budgets have gone up, not down. Here in California, our prison population has shrunk by almost half, but the budget has doubled from $8 billion in 2006 to $16 billion today. Yet rehabilitation programs are still funded at the same rate as before, a little over 4% of the total corrections budget. It's early 2022. Rebecca has found a good job, and they've been busy painting and decorating their home. Tonight, they're sitting on their new patio and talking about the compromises they're making. And then, of course, living together first and trying to figure out each other's... You Mannerisms. Know, yeah, and... you know, because I had been living by myself for a long time. Temperature. Of the <laughs> we still have an air issue. conditioner or the heater. <laughs> We still have I like an issue. it. I like it hot. She likes it cold. In the uh, sleeping, yeah. Yeah, at night. So how do you work that out? We drive every way. night. <laughs> <laughs> but we have that conversation every single night. I found these socks that you can put in the freezer, and I have them on every night so I can cool down. And then she's cool, and I'm warm. This reminds me of the cell. In the winter, it's very cool. I have a beanie on, a sweater, sweats, two pairs of socks. So to come home, and she wants it the way I just... I I said, man, I'm going to be warm when I have my own house. I'm going to have a nice blanket. I'm not going to have to wear a beanie and a sweater, a thermal. And then Gilbert's life takes its sharpest turn yet. I just got a job working in the prison. (laughs) Who would have ever thought? Gilbert has been hired to work as a certified counselor in the substance abuse program at the state prison in Norco, California. He's going back inside the walls. But he can't actually go inside yet. The prison is locked down because of a rise in COVID cases. So he's spending his first two weeks meeting his new colleagues online over Zoom. And then the day comes to go to work behind the gate. 
His new CDCR ID card says staff member, not inmate. I get over there. They all walk out and wait for me. And they were like, we're going to walk you in. Everybody's like, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And I, I really, nothing, nothing unusual was happening yet. I'm going to work. Like, I can't wait to get in the building now as a counselor. I'm pretty, like, excited. I'm like, yeah, let's go, man. I walk in there and I see the correctional officers and I'm in plain clothes. So there's a different kind of interaction. Hey, good morning. There's incarcerated men walking around like, you know, I see them in blue and I'm, I'm like, this is pretty, this is pretty wild right here. <laughs> it was just like, man, do I really want to do this? I got to leave my phone. I can't take nothing in the prison. So it's like, I'm still like following prison rules, just a little bit different. I just sat behind the desk. I was like, I made it. <laughs> I made it right here. It felt good. Gilbert doesn't just have a new office. He has something he only dreamed of long ago in the prison in Soledad, his own classroom. I wanted this for a long time because I sat in that seat for 13 years saying, man, if I ever get up there in the front, this is how I'm going to do it. If I set up my class, I'm going to set it up like this. Like, this is how I'm going to interact. This is what I would do different. At the Norco prison, he decided to name his classroom. This had been a tradition at Soledad. I named my room the Redemption Room. And I put it real big on top of the door, and I told him, when you walk through this door, it's a threshold. Leave whatever you got on the yard and the institutions, like, leave it on that side of the door, you're coming through this door. This door is going to represent change. Inviting formerly incarcerated people back inside prison is something new, even revolutionary, in California. For a long time, former inmates couldn't enter prison grounds as speakers or counselors, especially while they were still on parole, except in very rare cases. Corey Glassman is Gilbert's friend and was a fellow mentor in the substance abuse program at Soledad. After serving 31 years of a life sentence, Corey paroled in 2017, and he's now a counselor, just like Gilbert. He says that whenever a former prisoner came back to speak, it gave him hope. A few times somebody came in and while well, I was inside and they came back in, it was like I hung on every word, you know, like tell me everything. I always came through the back door in a bus. We called it the, the Grey Goose in chains, you know, waist chains, my hands cuffed to my waist, chains on my ankles. It's good to have the key and come in and out the front door. The state is finally recognizing how much these experienced people have to offer. That they are not just a problem, they are the solution. And that we can't solve the problems of violence and crime, or the problems of our justice and child welfare systems, without them. When the table is set up and the decision makers are sitting around that table, that at least, at least people like me have a seat at the table. At that seat, there needs to be youth. And until that seat is filled, we're probably going to have the same problems that are happening right now. If Gilbert never drove through those gates again, who could blame him? I asked him, why prison? He can work anywhere he wants now. I used to do this skit that I 
I played out the allegory of the cave by by uh, Plato. One guy he leaves the cave, and he sees life for what it is the the, the truth. When he comes back and he's telling the other guys in the cave, he, he gets ridiculed for it. I always tell the guys when I do it, would you come back? You don't have to. Like, you're no less of a person, but I think I think um, the guy that went back in the cave, what does that fire represent that's in the cave? What are those shadows? What are the chains on the feet, the chains on the hand, the chains on the neck? Being born and only knowing that cave, I could see that play out my whole life. I was in that cave for a long time. Some of it of my own fault and some of it not. I get to tell that story now. Now I can hold others accountable, just as I held myself accountable. Now I can say, hey, you need to fix this too, because there's other people coming behind me and they're going down that same path that they don't have to go down. Summer's coming and Gilbert and Rebecca are attending a Native American powwow on the UC Riverside campus. Gilbert has been involved in indigenous culture and spirituality for almost 20 years now, ever since he took his first native sweat lodge inside a prison. They circled up around the, the drum, you know, they said a prayer for food, and then the prayer was unlike any I ever heard. They prayed for the, for the sky and the water and the, the land and the people and the animals. They were giving all this you know, acknowledgement to all these different things in life. In the prison yard, he joined others who built a sweat lodge. It wasn't exactly traditional. The lodges there are often made of prison blankets and plastic wrapped over poles. But his first sweat changed his experience in prison. The guys got on the drum and started singing. Man, the thunder drum, when you sit close to it, it has that, that heartbeat. They were singing. Man, it tugged at my heart, and it felt good. I felt good in a place that I had been feeling bad for a long time. They started telling me, like, you're indigenous too, bro. You may not have grew up on a reservation. You may not know, like, your past. You may not understand it, but these things, like, what you're experiencing right now is not by mistake. <laughs> Today, Gilbert is with friends in a field near the city of Riverside, east of Los Angeles. They're chopping wood and building a fire. They're about to hold a ceremony to honor those who lost their lives to police violence. Gilbert is sitting in a circle of people. He's here for Manny. And then he starts to lead the group in a song. Everything that I learned when I was going to the lodge, when I was around the spiritual advisor, when I was around my brothers, everything they were teaching me, everything I learned in those groups by the counselors, by my group members, by my peers, by the mentors, all that energy from Coach, Miss Mitchell, Miss Marquez, I have a list of people. That's why I say I stand on the shoulder of many mighty, mighty people. When I have to make a decision, it's like those are the voices that come to me. All the preparation, all the energy that got put into me, it's like I'm, I'm seeing it in front of my eyes. I'm living it. 
I'm one in thousands of people, thousands of other people, and I met them, but they're not given that platform or that chance or that opportunity. Can we give somebody another chance? And somebody that was thrown away and given a life sentence, can we give them another chance? Maybe it's not their first chance. Maybe it's their hundredth chance. But do we give up on people? Do you get so bad that we just give up? Maybe time out. <laughs> we still got to be accountable. You do something wrong, there's accountability. I believe in accountability. But accountability without without addressing what happened before they committed that crime or used that drug or hurt somebody. Like, we have to talk about that. I always think about Mia Mingus, who's a disability justice theorist and TJ practitioner. That's Mariam Kaba again. She often shares a story about how so many people who live with other people don't wash the dishes in their homes, even after they promise to wash dishes. They just won't do it. And she uses it as an example of how we often resist being self-accountable. Whatever I eat, I wash the bowl. It's my responsibility in prison. That's your stuff, man. Ain't nobody gonna come and clean your stuff for you. So I'm used to that kind of living out here. A lot of people, they just eat and leave the bowl there, leave the cup there. It's the idea that if we can't be in right relationship at home, we can't be in the broader world. Like we're, if we're not practicing what we're actually preaching and we're not actually trying to do it, what, what are we talking about? Maybe I'll be comfortable to just come out and be like, hey man, pick up your stuff, you don't got a maid, you know? How are we going to build these experimental models that are going to actually be able to transform our social relationships with each other in a way that allows us to be able to hold harm very differently and to transform that harm ultimately? There's definitely a power in the decisions you make daily. Late one night, Afterlife's co-producer Mara and I were talking about the essential message of this project. She said it like this. We cannot ask of our institutions what we will not ask of ourselves. And I saw so much more clearly the challenge we face as a society. There were so many forces that shaped the path of Gilbert's life. We start with the fact of taking a frightened eight-year-old boy from his home in a sheriff's patrol car, an occurrence that still happens every day. We put him in McLaren Hall, a prison for kids who grew up in poverty. How can that not end badly? But then we have an enduring integrity that survives years and years in foster homes, juvenile hall, the youth authority, county jail, and prison. Gilbert finds his way out of those cages with his integrity not only intact, but strengthened. And he finds a place in his community. His family stays close through so many obstacles. They hold themselves together and hold it together for him. Gilbert and his incarcerated colleagues worked hard to understand what led them to cause harm or commit acts of violence. They probed the root causes and circumstances that led to their imprisonment. Yet most of us aren't willing to ask ourselves the same kinds of hard questions or examine the true function and impact of our institutions. The work Gilbert and those men did on themselves and each other in prison is the work we should all be doing as individuals and as a society. Hold ourselves accountable. Dig deep and question our motives. Model what we'd like to see in others. 
and wash our dishes. Maybe even wash someone else's dishes, like Gilbert did when he first came home. This makes a lot of sense, but how do you get everybody to buy in? We can't even agree on things in our own homes with our own families. There's families that are divided just on political parties. If you are a prison abolitionist, as an example, yes, we want to abolish prisons, but there are 2.4 million people being handled by them. This is poet and former Black Panther leader Erica Huggins, interviewed by fellow writer and activist Adrian Marie Brown in the Emergent Strategy podcast. Find a prison where you can go in and volunteer, especially with the 14 to 18 year olds. It'll give you an experience of the time it will take for all of these big barges to turn in the ocean. We want stuff to happen by yesterday. It doesn't. But we used to say revolution in our lifetime. Isn't that hilarious? That's hilarious because it's a continual thing. It's continual turning and changing. We're relaxing in Gilbert and Rebecca's backyard. It's late afternoon on a sunny Southern California day. We're shaded by tall pine trees. Gilbert is smoking a cigar and savoring the moment. Well, they told me I would never get out. I got out. Who would ever thought that the prison would say, hey, we need people like you to come in here and work with your people. Those are my people, you know. I sit in the group with all, everybody's represented. That's my best fight against an unjust system. Gilbert is still volunteering in his community and continues to honor Manny's memory. There are many people who admire Gilbert and the work he does. I've met dozens of lifers across California who say they wouldn't be home today if it weren't for Gilbert and the work he helped them do on themselves. Here's Corey Glassman again. It was his instincts, his intuition. Out of all of the people that helped me along the way, and there's some significant people that really helped me get through certain barriers he was on the top of that list. Corey is now working in six prisons, teaching the Offender Mentor Certification Program that he and Gilbert graduated from. But it's not just former prisoners who've learned from Gilbert. Retired police lieutenant Jaime Fernandez became a counselor in Soledad Prison, and he says Gilbert helped him learn how to do the job. The work that, that he does and continues to do it's, is extremely important because you're actually helping men to be better men. Jaime is now the director of the substance abuse program at Soledad. McLaren Hall is being turned into a park and community center. 
LA County is allocating more than $13.6 million, and the county and the city of El Monte are still seeking community input on the project. A hearing to consider dropping charges against Deputy Bradley Dietz is scheduled for April 24, 2023, in LA County's Alhambra Courthouse. In the fall of 2022, LA County voters booted Alex Villanueva out of office. And now we get to switch from defense to offense. So we're gonna have a lot of fun here. So we're gonna be going after dirty politicians and we're also gonna be going after dirty journalists, yes. We'll make it easy for you, Alex. You can reach us at grayareapodcast.com. This episode was co-produced by Mara J. Reynolds and Gilbert Bale. George Sanchez Tello and Claudia Melendez Salinas contributed reporting to this series. Special thanks to Cerise Castle. We'll have links to the podcasts mentioned in this episode in our show notes. We'll also link to the site for a new documentary film about the original pilot cohort of trainees in the Offender Mentor Certification Program. It's called The 50. You can find all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And now that you've finished Season 2, you might want to go back and check out our six stories of justice and redemption in Season 1. And please share us with your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us reach more people. The music for this episode was by Crowander Lovo Loco, Blue Dot Sessions, Martin Shellikens, Sara Afonso, and Ketza. Thanks to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org. And as your host, I want to give a huge shout out, thanks, and all my love and respect to Gilbert Bale and Mara Reynolds, who both worked tirelessly for four years on this project. To Gilbert's wife, Rebecca, his daughter, Marlena, and their families who entrusted us with the honor of sharing their story. And to all our friends and supporters inside and outside the walls. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this has been Season 2, After Life. But, um, but She's yeah. the best Sally I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> the best selling you've ever yeah. had. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. He makes me laugh. So far, you haven't run away. You haven't changed your number. And <laughs> call me every day. The day you were leaving in the airport from our visit, you were already booking a flight to come back. So. I must have done something right.